Oh, oh, PC. Hey, hey that's, that's cool. cool. You got a podcast? Well, I didn't, I didn't know, know that. Oh, that's cool. Now you do. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are back. Oh, that's cool. OTC's very own podcast and all the amazing people we work with right here at Ozarks Technical Community College. I, of course, am Jared Durden, and with me, as always, is Andrew Crocker, and I'm feeling pretty sunny. Feeling pretty sunny on a, on a rainy day. It's been rainy since we got back from spring break. For it's days. been really rainy today. Uh, today, we record these ahead of time, of course, and you know, the, the benefit of the really rainy days is there's no sun crushing you through the windows, and you can open up the windows, open up the shades as much as you possibly can, and enjoy the atmosphere. Don't you like a rainy day? A little bit, but I need sunshine for my general mental health, I feel like. You know what I mean? I get I get a little down when it's too gloomy for too long. I only get down. I now, do you ever pull all-nighters anymore for any given reason? I don't think I'm physically capable of it anymore. I thought that the other day because I, I was pulling uh, not an all-nighter but a most of the nighter trying yeah. to catch up with work desperately desperately trying to catch up with work and uh, around like two and three o'clock they hit a little different on the other side of your 40s I okay. seem to remember being able to do that on a more regular basis and now it taxes you there's a tax now a physical tax when you take that two to three a.m. <laughs> late yeah. night working I just don't have it in me as much anymore I feel a difference if I make it to midnight anymore it's a midnight you clock out at midnight really I mean I cl- I'm in bed by 10 <laughs> <laughs> am I just an old I'm the old man here you, you well I you know you're young in spirit but maybe not as much as I thought yeah well I, mean, I, an, I get up pretty early you're chugging an energy drink too That's right now that, I, mean, I mean you're doing the best you can just to make it to the end of the day at this point <laughs> I, I get up pretty early I was I was up at you know, six this morning, and sometimes I'm up at five. But no, you are not making the case that you are young at heart. If you're getting up that early, that is some pretty really retiree like stuff right there. I mean, I'm sure I could, but on those days, if I if I only you know I've I've gone on you know six hours or so, and it, I just I don't feel right. I need to start making some adjustments because uh, how often do we hear you miss that eight hours of sleep? You're shaving hours off your life you, right. you got to hit that eight hours if you want to live the nice full life but right. i don't know how, how many more experiences in my 80s I'm, I'm assuming i make it to the 80s how many more experiences in my 80s do i really need to live at that point that's my logic i'm like i gotta live the now see you see what those a couple gloomy- hours now in my 40s are not are worth more than whatever the hours are in my 80s see what a gloomy day does we've got we already have these dark <laughs> conversations first thing out of the out of the gate that's right I, i'll tell you one reason i'm feeling particularly sunny is because uh Last time we had a podcast, we had the great Christy Connor with us. Such a that that hour that we had with her flew by. She's so much fun to talk to, and I took a moment to promote polit, um, politically active's Springfield Votes event, which had all fourteen candidates for all eight races up here on campus. They all agreed to come. We had twenty students volunteering to hold it. I think we had about a hundred people show of students people in the community. It just happened a couple days prior to this recording, and I am just filled with civic pride. That was such a great event. I'm shocked every single time. I shouldn't be at this point. You and I have been around students for you know a couple decades between the two of us, but I'm still surprised at how willing students are to give their time if it's for a cause they believe in, if it's for something that sounds like fun. I just too often get the stereotype of students that are just on campus for their class, clocking out, and then they get out. But no, they, they want to put yeah. their time. They want to put parts of themselves forward and have the college look and sound more like them. And an event like that, and I, I love how agreeable the candidates were the whole time and the public that showed up, nobody lost their minds and had to be escorted out. That's always a victory. That is. It's just, um, 
my it makes my heart happy and uh, one of the reasons why I, I feel the way I do today. Fantastic. And you had sent me an email with um, you have you have video clips of, of the candidates. Yes. Is that something anybody could get access to? Oh uh, yeah, sure. Matter of fact, if you go to there should be a better, more accessible place for this. But if you go on YouTube and you find me, Andrew Crocker, you'll see my beautiful face, the blue OTC background, and then I have several playlists on my YouTube page, and one of them is just all politically active stuff. And if you click on the politically active playlist, all 14 candidates during the event stepped into the hallway and fielded a handful of questions from a volunteer student, from a student volunteer. And um, all of those interviews were great. And there are all different flavors. Some of the candidates were like engaging the student in conversations. Others were more, more traditional Q&A. Some of the students were editorializing themselves. Others did much more of a objective newsman approach to it. It was just, uh, it, again, I, I am... I asked these students, hey, I'm going to pull you aside. Make sure you ask them some questions, okay? And I walk into it thinking, they're going to ask questions like, tell me about yourself. What's your campaign like? No, man. No. They're drilling these local candidates. They're drilling really? on homelessness, on affirmative action in the police force, on um, oh, what, uh, school board candidates. There was a huge blow up in the school board recently. Very controversial. A couple students asked candidates about that. Um, man, they're not just interested in showing up and play acting like they care. They really care. And it doesn't surprise me intellectually, but when I just see it in action, because you just so rarely get to see it in action, as um, it's just, it's beautiful. It's, it's a really beautiful thing, and it reaffirms why I do what I do, and hopefully those video clips that you get to watch as an instructor, as a staff person, anybody who might be listening to this, you, you kind of feel the same way. Because, I, you know, we have somebody from health sciences with us today, and you know, um, the same enthusiasm my students in this club are showing for that. They're also, other students are showing for health sciences stuff. And, you know, how often do we see the EMP program post stuff on Instagram that you and I can watch and how amazing they are at that stuff. So it's just a volcano of creativity and passion that I'm so lucky to be able to tap into occasionally. And almost directly parallel, I did my civic duty by getting a pie in the face. <laughs> you did. You got a pie on Wednesday. So would you like to break down the experience of getting a pie in the face? Because you really got plastered. She enjoyed that. Uh, so <laughs> we earned, uh, the STEM club earned uh, almost $400, um, which is going to go to their great events. We've got one coming up. Don't forget, March 31st at the PMC, 7 p.m. You can watch The Martian with us. Uh, and we'll have an astrophysicist, Dr. Mike Reed from MSU, is going to come and, and talk a little bit about the movie as well. And we invited the Ag Department from RBC because apparently there's a lot of potato growing going on on Mars in some interesting ways. Uh, but yeah, she not only pied me, but really rubbed it in. You can see it in the in And the she videos. being the... Uh, Hallie Burr, which was uh, uh, one of our STEM Club members, a student here, who really out of the gate kind of took over this project and got so many people across the campus involved, uh, including our staff, who uh, I want to thank as well, that not only students, but our, our staff was probably the biggest contributors. Um, Shout out to the staff. Because, Shout out. I mean, it was neck and neck between Philip Arnold and um, and uh, Kelly Holden. Um, I threw my weight behind the dark horse, Dr. Vivian Elder. I threw my weight behind there. She knows. She did well, too. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, we, we, we had a lot of fun, and, and we'll do it again next year. So, so look out for, for that. But we are... How'd it taste? <laughs> 
I could smell it all day <laughs> until I took a shower. And I got extra creamy because I thought, well, maybe it'll be a little more forgiving. You know what I mean? But I also think like my skin felt smoother. Oh, maybe there's day. something so to that. I don't that. know if that's a real thing. A or new not. treatment to explore. I may just end up Getting. completely covered in zits next week. <laughs> so we have with us today uh, lead instructor from paramedicine, uh, Joseph McTaggart. How are you, hey. sir? I am well. How are you guys? Welcome to the program. Thank oh, you. This is uh, one of these days they're going to be when our uh, podcast hits like Joe Rogan numbers. One of these days we're going to have like. We're going to be like, uh, we're going to have our own Jeopardy questions. And one of those Jeopardy questions is going to be like deep cuts. When, uh, you know, when the head of the SIM department had her interview, who did she name as somebody that she would like to be interviewed? And sure enough, we get uh, that guy finally got you today. Finally got you today, sir. How's life treating you? What's, and uh, in addition to that, how do you exist here at OTC? Uh, well, I'll start with the latter. Uh, lead instructor at paramedicine, like you said. So I mainly teach the paramedic classes in Springfield. Uh, also do some help with curriculum development for the EMTs and, and uh, academic resource for the other instructors. Um, teach EMS Essentials, which is a prereq for the paramedic class. Uh, and now that I've said all that, I forgot what the first question uh, how, is. How are you doing? How's oh, your heart? How's your spirit? I'm well. Are uh, you too I'm, filled with civic pride? I am thrilled to be around windows right now. <laughs> I, I exist yeah. in the corner of a corner of a corner in a basement. Oh my gosh. I used uh, to teach a way back in the day when I was an adjunct, back in the aughts. They had PLS classes in Lincoln before mm-hmm. it became like pure health sciences. And some of those classrooms are kind of nice, but uh, like where the vaccine clinic is now. That mm-hmm. those used to be PLS classrooms, and on the first floor, at like the northwest corner of that building, are a couple dungeon rooms with literally no windows. And yeah, you kind of yep. feel yeah, you yeah, feel like you're in a. That's where I'm at. But even even though it's gloomy outside, this is a it's refreshing. Um, yeah, get a little natural light on your well, face. Yeah. So, uh, uh, paramedicine. Can you? For, from a layman, someone yeah. that, that teaches physics classes, what exactly is paramedicine in, in, in the larger medical field? For the most part, it's the people on ambulances uh, and used to be known as EMS, emergency medical services. There's kind of big a bit, been a big debate nationally about should we change the name of that because now it's incorporating more than just the 911 emergency medical response calls. Now there's community paramedics that do more home health responses. Uh, and paramedics in vaccine clinics and, and other settings. So we kind of jumped on board with let's rename paramedicine to be more inclusive of all the things that paramedics are involved in now. I, I Again, I worked, as, as I've mentioned a couple times on previous episodes, I worked at 911 for a couple hours. Still EMS over there. Mm-hmm. What's the, I mean, do you just, is the idea that if you retool the uh, acronym there, that's going to be more expansive and what it includes? Is that the idea? I think it's part of a paradigm change. I think people are just trying to expand mindsets for a lot of people that are in the field of, of what it means to be a paramedic. So I, think I was, that's think, why the, I was the thinking about that exact same thing yeah. because they did the same thing with UFOs when we were all, when none of us were paying attention because the last couple of years now UFOs are kind of a big thing with, uh, in the news, but they don't call them UFOs. You and I call them UFOs. But apparently in the Pentagon, they call them UAPs. Really? Unidentified aerial phenomenon, I think hmm. is what they call them. And I'm just, why? Why not? Why can't we have something fun? Hey, UFOs <laughs> is just fun. It's fun. Why? Everything why? comes to mean something, and, and over time, that's different than the original meaning, I yeah. guess. Yeah. 
Well, one of the reasons I, um, one of the reasons you were named by uh, Miss Greasehaber was the fact that she, uh, as I can tell now, just a few minutes talking to you, you have a, a preternatural calm to you, is what she said. Just nothing. You're unflappable. Nothing bothers you. And as a person who is flappable. Let me ask you. Perfectly flat. But also uses the word preternatural. Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, isn't that the correct usage of the oh, word? Gosh, I, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, anyways, the I, I do wonder: is that a nature? Or is that a nurture? Were you born cool as a cucumber? Is that a survival skill you had to develop? I, I think it's a nature thing for me. I wish I could say this is this is how it happens. I just how I've always been, as far as I can tell. Hmm. So in paramedicine, what does that? program look like? Walk us through a day in uh, one of your classes and uh, kind of what is the experience of a student seeking a paramedicine degree? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start actually before I teach the paramedic, but I'm gonna, I'll am i start before that um, because students have to be licensed EMTs before they can start paramedic. Um, so for that, it's a, they go through a one semester course, uh, two, four hour days a week. Um, and then I teach the EMS Essentials course, which is just a, a hybrid semester course before they start paramedic. Most of what I do when they're in paramedic, then I have them Tuesdays and Thursdays for eight hours. So my days look a little different than most people's with students. Um, but we'll start a typical day with uh, usually five to 15 minutes of what we call grit time, which is where we We've modeled it off of the Princeton Wellness Wheel, which is just a model of holistic wellness for people, and present them with um, with research or tactics for maintaining wellness and resiliency when they're getting into a really difficult field. Um, do that for five or 15 minutes, and then usually we dive into talking through case studies to introduce whatever the topic is of the day. Uh, and then I'd say probably 50% or more of my classes we spend in the lab doing as much hands-on practice as we can with skills or running pretend calls on the ambulance. So one of the reasons um, I loved doing Springfield votes so much, which, by the way, we did in your building, uh, I just I get filled. It just fills me with, with pride in these students watching them take their passion for civics and turn it into action. What moments do you feel that in your current position? Because you get to work hands-on. I mean, one of the nice things about your position is you're not just in a classroom setting, you're in a practice setting. So mm-hmm. when, what happens exactly to fill you the same way? Oh, I, one of the things I enjoy the most is, so so much of what they do is making really difficult decisions in really stressful situations. Uh, and to prepare them for that, you can't always say, this is the right answer in this situation. There's so much gray no, out there. Yeah. Uh, so I try to help them learn how to think really critically and make decisions and justify their decisions. And usually about two thirds of the way through the year, they get to that point and they start debating with themselves and they all have different right answers to the same scenario. And that's when I, that's when I get really excited about, you know, oddly enough, the toughest class I ever taught was for, um, uh, was in the community. I, I taught public speaking for a couple semesters and was not great at it, but man, probably a similar experience to what you go through those first couple speeches they give they are shaky as a leaf and then by the time they give three or four they've been through the ringer they've learned a couple tricks of the trade by the final third really like you just said the final third of the semester to see them give a speech much more confidently like a different human really Mm -hmm. 
it, that sounds like it mirrors very much yeah, what you're describing. It's really fun to see them grow and develop into professionals and, and then kind of take off from there. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine there's a little bit of extra too, because again, I know them in a classroom setting, but you get to actually shoulder to shoulder work alongside them. Mm-hmm. I mean, really granular on the ground stuff. Oh yeah. And I'm with them for a whole year too. It's not just, a, I was going to yeah, ask so. you, you get to just necessarily by the nature of that, you must get to know them very well, mm-hmm. not just who they are, but like how they are. Yeah. Yeah. And many of them I work with after the fact as peers, cause I'm still oh sure yeah. uh, part-time on the ambulance. So yeah, that that's really fun too. Cause then we're out there and I, where I can bounce questions off of them and just interact as peers. So how did yeah. you get into the field? What drove you to to first, you know, being a paramedic yourself? Uh, yeah, that's so that's ultimately a long story. But I will say when I was in high school, the one thing I knew I didn't want to do was healthcare. So, <laughs> you knew uh, it. I, that, With that was every fiber of your being. The only thing I had eliminated <laughs> was healthcare. And, um, but I ended up... Uh, when I was in college, I was working on a, on a ropes course, um, at Camp Barnabas, which is nearby, which Mm -hmm. has people with disabilities. And so the ropes course has a lot of modifications for people with disabilities. Um, and I was in a position where I was taking over leadership of that course, working with the person who preceded me in that. Um, and after several days of watching him kind of make calls about what was or wasn't safe for these people with medical concerns, it occurred to me that I probably needed to learn more about the medical field. Uh, so he was an RN, um, had recently become an RN. And so I asked him, Hey, what, what would be the easiest way for me to just learn something about the medical field? He said, take an EMT class. So that's what I did. Uh, found it really interesting. It was also a way to have an income while I was doing some other things. Um, and I worked in the burn unit as a tech during that time as well. So all of these experiences culminated into realizing that uh, this was a field that was really interesting, but also one where you just, there's always something new to learn. Um, so that's essentially how I got into it. Uh, how, paramedic was just another step to... How, how deep did you have to dig into yourself working at the burn unit to... You know, I'd struggle, manage the struggles empathetically as a person who sees these people going through immeasurable pain? Um, it was less difficult than I anticipated. Uh, I, I think imagining it is more difficult than doing it. Um, but I'll also say a unique aspect of the burn unit is that patients are there frequently for weeks or months. So you get to know them and you get to know the family. And uh, I think that made it easier somehow as well. I actually uh, was blown up when I was 17 uh, I, we lived out in the country and burned trash, uh, and uh, we uh, something was in the can and it exploded, and I got uh, second degree burns uh, on my legs and arm, and 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 spent some time in the burn unit. Really, Ooh, it, I, it's, it, it's an undescribable. That's got to be the most painful thing. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's. Uh, I've had kidney stones too, but there's. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's other things out there, but yeah, just the the amount of time it took to get from Elkland to Springfield and we, we didn't take an ambulance actually my my mom just drove me and oh man I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest it no so something we like to ask to kind of get to know people too is um, if you could have dinner with anyone alive or dead oh. who would it be and why these are always really difficult questions for me because I overanalyze things sure so 
part of me wants to sit here and think for like an hour or two. Someone jumped. The right though. answer. Someone jumped to the top of your mind. Um, or to tell us your start doing your analysis. Just tell us what what your analy- what, what, Well, I mean, there are different your, things I weigh. One thing I weigh is: Do I want to have an interesting conversation about it, or do I want to find someone who's done something interesting and ask them questions? Like, do I hmm. want it, the dinner for the entertainment factor, or do I want it to satisfy curiosity for me? Um, Okay, so let's do entertainment factor entertainment first. Factor. Who's the most entertaining person you can have a dinner with? So uh, here's going to be my answer for today. Okay. Bela Fleck. Oh, good who, choice. Are you familiar? Oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. I've, I've seen him I'm in the surprised. Fleck Tone several times. Yeah, he's. Yeah, yeah. I think he's incredibly interesting. Comes through town. Yeah. 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 Are you familiar? I, I no. assume this is a musical artist? Musician, is, yeah. Okay. He is a, he's a banjo player. Um, but what I appreciate about him and I think is really interesting is um, he's taken the banjo to just every genre of music mm-hmm. that it can be in. Very innovative. I think it'd be interesting to pick his brain. No pun who's intended. That incredible, <laughs> who's that incredible bassist he plays with? Uh, Victor Wooten. Victor Wooten. Yeah. If you've never seen, he's he's become popular again um, on TikTok. He does. I've seen, I keep seeing, or maybe it's just me because I see a bunch of musician stuff. But he 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 does some really cool things. Just talking about the basic music theory that even if you're not a musician are really accessible. So then who would it be if uh, your other category was... If he's going to learn a lot from yeah, somebody. Yeah, someone that you're really curious and want to ask questions. Yeah, honestly, he's probably the one for Same that person? category. Yeah, so... Okay. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't know... Boy, we I, got to that fast. Yeah. You're better than me. If you ask me in 15 minutes, I'd probably have... I have the same... New I have the same yeah. <laughs> predisposition. I was like, if you ask me now, the answer is going to be different than an hour from now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who would you just want to go through a Taco Bell drive through with? <laughs> uh, interesting. How busy is the drive-through? It's pretty. You're going to sit there busy. 15 there minutes. Time. Yeah, and the whole time, like <laughs> your mouth is watering too. So, is in my mind, like we're, it's we're nice also, to sit around and just kind of shoot the breeze with somebody. But like, I might like 40 percent of my brain is occupied with the fact that I have got some gorditas headed my way. It sounds like I should probably do that with someone that I'm already friends with. <laughs> <laughs> They can forgive my my frustration. Your impatience, yeah. yeah. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> it does feel like it would be a stressful situation. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Well, it's always nice to have a nice conversation, but you can only sit for so long, waiting and waiting and waiting. All right. Anyways, we're we're drilling into me more than we are into you. Um, can you uh, so can do you tell us one of my favorite things that Jared used to ask is. Uh, Somebody who you consider a personal hero for yourself. It can be somebody you know. It can be somebody you don't know. Really, we like to open that up and just see what comes out of you. Um, I think my initial thought would be um, someone who certainly had great influence on me was uh, going back to the the gentleman I mentioned I worked with on the ropes course. Um, He taught me a lot. I I worked with him in a lot of different contexts uh, on the ropes course and then with some zipline uh, he was part owner of a zipline company that I worked with. Uh, and then, like I said, he was a nurse as kind of his third career. Um, but he was a really good teacher. And I didn't realize it till I started teaching here how much he taught me about how to effectively teach people uh, in a really experiential way, in a way that helps them own what they're learning. What is the thesis statement of that lesson that he imparted? Know why you do what you do. Both from the teacher perspective, know why you're presenting things as you are, um, but then also trying to impart that in the students of eventually you're going to have to take this information 
and be able to apply it in a way that you haven't explicitly learned. But if you know why you're doing what you're doing, you should be able to take those parts and pieces and apply them to a new situation to solve it. That is great advice for, in my opinion, for different reasons, because I work in gen ed and in gen ed, we can be us instructors. We can be very dogmatic. We like our classes done in a particular way. We like our students to do their work in a particular way and we'll nick them a million times, a point at a time, like death by a thousand cuts if it's not done that way. And, um, you know, we've, we've kind of had this refocus over the last five, six years, or maybe just because I've been paying attention to it as a full-timer, of like, maybe don't sweat the small stuff as much. The small mm-hmm. stuff isn't why you're here, and it's not what your relationship with these students is about. I exist, me personally, to just make sure that the students who take my class, by the time they're done in May, A, they get a grade that's passable, but more importantly, that they have an understanding of how our system of democracy works and how politics works and, by the way, doesn't work. And uh, that's what's important. That's what's important. And so I, I hear that phrase a million times in life. If you give them an inch, it'll take a mile. And I'm like, give them the mile. I mean, the, the semester is a, a marathon. They're mm-hmm. going to take a mile, and that mile is less than ideal. But the whole marathon overall was run pretty darn well. Yeah. Yeah, and what are, are, the, what are the lessons from the marathon? I mean, is it... What do you do when you have this really minor setback? Or is it how do you compose yourself for the full marathon? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And how, how, how do you answer that question? Uh, I, I mean, I think there are lessons probably from all of the small things, but I think when you take it within the greater context um, of, the, uh, you know, of the full marathon in this metaphor, I guess, uh, taking that context forward is, is much more important than whatever small things have happened. Uh, and I think back to students. Um, you know, we've had students in our program that have had issues that on, on face value would maybe cause them to be unsuccessful, multiple tardies or, or missing for various things. But if you dig a little bit deeper and you find out maybe they have some life issues causing those problems, then those nicks and cuts really aren't, aren't worth it. You can help them work through the life issues and, and kind of be flexible with your presentation and expectations and, and they still come out i hear that advice and that person that you named earlier his name again uh, his name is paul so yeah. paul's advice just rephrased through my prism would be just keep your eye on the ball keep your eye, yeah big picture please big picture you don't need to fight a million little wars but you know big picture here at the end of the by the time it's almost like public speaking like are they speaking confidently and with preparation by the end of the semester, then mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Like some people did it A level, other people did it B level, so be it. But that's what we're gunning for here. And not that like, okay, what your your PowerPoint presentation was a little rickety and you know, yeah. let's not sweat the small stuff as much. Yeah. So um we we brought you on today um and and would like to talk about um emotional labor. Uh and and we should probably start just with your definition of it, your research into it, and kind of how you're interested in it built. Yes, yeah, I so. kind of feel like we have been on a theme recently because we just had Christy Connor talking about uh, uh, test anxiety or just, you know, work anxiety, momentary anxiety, and this kind of feeds into that a little bit. Yeah, so emotional labor, uh, that was introduced by Arlie Hochschild in the 80s. Uh, she was a sociologist, and she used flight attendants as a, as a way to introduce 
this new form of labor where now people are being paid for the emotions that they display. Um, so in the example of flight attendants, maybe they're working with customers who are very demanding or rude or, or what have you, and their job is to display a happy face, create a welcoming, warm environment, regardless of whatever emotions they're actually feeling on the inside. Um, so she and, and researchers since have kind of um, defined emotional labor as or rather the strategies that people take toward emotional labor is either surface acting or deep acting. So when people are faced with that, they either deep act, which is where they try to do something to change their emotion to align with what they need to display in the situation. So if it's a flight attendant, they might try to think about something that makes them feel happy or somehow reframe the situation. Um, I remember an example I read once was uh, if customers are acting like children, then just imagine them as children. And that will make the situation easier to deal with. But they're doing something to reframe their actual emotional state uh, in order to display what they need to display. And surface acting would be not doing anything to change how you feel. You just put on the face that you need to display. Um, And I was interested in this when I was working. I was still full-time on the ambulance, working with another paramedic who was probably 15 to 20 years in, which is pretty long for paramedic. That's, That's a long career. And, uh, I was in grad school just learning about this topic, talking to him about it, thought it was interesting. And when I was telling him about the, the definitions, he's like, that, that's exactly what I do when I describe surface acting. He's like, that's what I do. That's how I, that's how I keep on going in this field. Um, the thing that was interesting about that is that almost all of the research I've read says surface acting is the, the strategy that will lead to burnout, lead to job dissatisfaction exhaustion and all of those things and deep acting it's not necessarily consistently positive outcomes but it's consistently at least not negative outcomes um so that got me really interested is there is is surface acting really always the wrong way um you know what's what's the greater story here so that's that's what got me into it um i think i've since realized in talking to him more that what he does probably is more like deep acting um, can you, I'm sorry, can you define that? Yes. Deep acting. Deep acting. So Act, define that for me, please. So you're in a situation where um, we could use the context of paramedics. Uh, you need to display calm or professionalism to your patient, to the bystanders on scene, to the fellow first responders. But inside, you are panicked, um, stressed out, frazzled. There are generally two strategies people would take to display that calm and professionalism they need. One of them would be, I'm just going to put on a face that I think shows calm, but inside I'm still going crazy. The other one would be, I'm going to try to do something to reframe this situation in my head to make me feel calm or to remind me of why I need to be professional and actually reframe my emotion to match what I need to display. So to uh, re to restate what you said yep um instead of acting calm the trick is to be calm essentially find a way to become calm. essentially and maybe calm is a difficult one to conceptualize this with happy seems like or yeah happy i think i think in your field calm is good calm is good for paramedic (laughs) but i mean you might have one of those just horrific calls where uh you would rather go sit in the corner yeah um but you've yeah 
try to try to do something to reframe it in your mind to display what you actually need to feel. We yeah, would feel we calm. Uh, we would feel that way at nine one one, and we're not in the field. We're not in the field. We're not seeing the things we see. Instead, we're just hearing it. And I mean, finding a way to grind through some of these calls with belligerent people mm-hmm. or uh, perfectly fine people, but on the worst day of their lives, or just tragic instances. I mean, tragic. And that's that a, your imagination can't go far yeah. enough. Tragic. I, I think I just, that'd be uniquely difficult in that situation because you, one, so much of that is in your imagination of what's actually happening there. You don't get to see it. But two, the only thing you get to display is your voice. <clears throat> that is a very good point. What I will say is, while I was working there, and this was a good long while ago, they were like, uh, who knows where technology is going to come in the future? We might have the ability to have... Um, 911 FaceTime and video calls for 911 and every single one of us working in there are like oh my gosh talking to them on the phone during this is most is it's difficult enough having to like having to personally witness stuff mm-hmm. uh, it, it made some people's stomach churn but it is an interesting point because uh, you know in terms of our projection we only have to worry about our vocal projection you guys uh, literally your entire presentation entire head to body toe, language yeah, yeah. Uh, that definition you're being paid to express an emotion that you uh-huh. may not feel is I've used emotional labor before labor before I've, I've had an understanding of it, but that, I mean, it just nailed on the head has given me a whole new perspective of how to, how to think about it. Cause I, we're, we're leading into this in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. This is a huge part of an instructor's day. And when you talked about the idea of deep acting, I think at first, uh, when you when you started giving examples of it, I went to oh well you know I I, I I'm trying to find empathy for a student and understand their um, what's happening to them what's happening to them outside of the classroom before I make judgments about why they're acting the way they're acting uh, in order to help me you know be there for them but that's not the same that's not acting that's actually looking well, for this uh, you know this 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 way to to be the best instructor I can. And that is emotionally taxing, which Uh isn't quite the same as an emotional labor of, I'm going to put on this nice face for you. I'm I'm going to be a certain way, which we're also doing as well. Yeah. I think, I think the empathy approach is a form of deep acting. Uh, I I know that Alicia Grandy, she's one of the researchers um, over the last 20 years that's been most prominent in this. And she, she describes deep acting as one of two things. Um, the second one that she describes is very much like the empathy approach. I'm going to find a way to cognitively reframe this situation, which could be finding empathy for this person and whatever their circumstance is. It could also be the imagine that this person who's treating me poorly is a child, and then it's easier to, you know, it's easier to be treated poorly by a child, right? Because they don't they don't necessarily know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, the other form of deep acting, though, could just be uh, I think about the seven dwarves whistle while you work. Yeah, and yeah. That, that was something think I hadn't a, thought of before. Yeah, just think of think of something you enjoy. Go to your happy place. Put on some music. Yeah, yeah, that could be deep acting too, because you're doing something to reframe your emotional state. But now that I think about it, I have done that before, right? I've sung to myself in my head, or mm-hmm. I've, I've thought about something else while it was going on, right? And, and in order to, to put myself in a good mood, uh-huh. I like to right yeah. before I go into class watch something funny, just so I'm 
I'm jazzed up oh, and yeah, I'm happy and idea. I'm excited right now. Yeah. I'm laughing already and, you know, I'm not taking myself too seriously. Yeah. Dumb guy question here. Do you teach that? I, you know, I, I or is it something you're just teaching facts on the ground and you hope your students naturally develop it? I, I mentioned earlier the first five to 15 minutes of each class I do is we call it grit. Uh, we've got Liz Toll is our, she's part time and she's also a full time or maybe part time. She's an EMT locally as well. Um, but she is the coordinator of a grit program, uh, which is in its infancy, but it's, it's, it's going strong. It's being, it's, uh, making progress. Um, but as part of that, we think about what are the things that may help them be more resilient in this field. So when I do the first five to 15 minutes of grit, I usually talk about emotional labor. I do that toward the end, kind of before they go into their internship and they're going to be doing this for real on the ambulance. Um, and almost all the people in my class are working as EMTs. So they have experience there already. They've got a context for what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, I try to teach that or, or similar tactics for them. Now, you had actually told us prior to recording that uh, this is kind of a field of study for you right now. Uh-huh. And you, uh, I want to, let's just charge straight into emotional intelligence. Yeah. Since you're, this is kind of your forte right now, is there a clinical definition? How, how do you define emotional intelligence? Emotional intelligence, <clears throat> excuse me, emotional intelligence, if you were to ask five different researchers how they define emotional intelligence they'd probably give you five different answers and three of them would probably be very angry at the other people very much in disagreement what's the Um, disagreement over so it was originally introduced as an ability emotional intelligence is an ability uh and then other people came in and I, i guess i'll just start at the beginning the first three researchers said it's an ability it's how you evaluate your emotions, how you evaluate others' emotions, uh, and then how you then respond to that to manage your relationships with people. Um, Daniel Goleman wrote the book Emotional Intelligence a few years after that and incorporated way more into it than just those three things. Uh, Basically, everything that's not a cognitive ability, he said, was emotional intelligence. Um, A lot of people really grasped that and, and ran with it. And then a trait model of emotional intelligence came out where people are saying, it's not an ability, it's a personality trait. You can't change this. It's something you're born with. Um, so Bar on is one of those researchers. He's the guy that made emotional quotient popular and developed an uh, insanely long assessment for measuring emotional quotient. Um, but when you look at those models, that, so there's the ability model, the trait model, and then a mixed model of the two. The trait model has like five dimensions that each incorporate four or five different sub-dimensions and the mixed model is similar, similarly broad. Um, so when you, when you look at those definitions, there's just so much that's encompassing and a lot of those things are overlapped with the big five personality traits and other things that are already measured in other ways. Um, so I, I think the ability model is the most specific. Um, I think there's plenty of research that shows that it can be trained and it's not just a fixed trait. But that ability model would be, as it's been updated today, uh, four dimensions, which is self-emotion appraisal, others' emotion appraisal, use of emotion, uh, like if you're angry, you're using that as motivation to improve rather than just being angry, and then regulation of emotion, 
which in that context is uh, about how quickly you rebound from distressing events. I think that last one is what we typically, as a layman, what I typically associate with emotional intelligence. To what degree can you manage your emotions? And, um, you know, there are some people who have a good grip on their emotions or, or maybe just naturally personality-wise, they're not super up or down. They're just all real mm-hmm. steady. And then there are other people who are like ships at sea and their ships are being tossed about in the waves and there's just nothing you can do about it. Uh, so that is the way I think the average, the layman, I'd like to think of myself as the everyman, <laughs> but that I think is the way that the average person might think of the field. Mm-hmm. Does that mean then, and this is a, I don't know, does that mean then that somebody could be quote unquote emotionally unintelligent? That's another question that would be debated as well. I think um, if we're looking at it as an ability, I think people could be less skilled. They could be bad at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it necessarily is the same as unintelligent, um, but less skilled in understanding their emotions. So do you guys, are you familiar with Brene Brown? She's an emotion yeah. researcher as well. Um, she did a study in 2005 or so had over 7,000 people list all of the emotions that they could recognize in themselves and name. And the average number of emotions was three wow. per person. Happy, sad, and angry Yeah, of over 7,000 people. These people um, have not seen the movie Inside Out. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't that fantastic? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, actually, that uh, you tell me as an emotion researcher, like that's, I, I, I've listen to podcasts by the screenwriters and they put a lot of work into making sure they accurately the way, represented the field. The way they, uh, the way they illustrated that I thought was fantastic. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is an issue I have maybe, maybe emotionally intelligent is the wrong way to phrase it because, uh, managing your emotions. I don't know if it is strictly intelligence. Because really smart people, quote unquote smart people, can be bad at that, right? So yeah. I don't know if intelligence is the right yeah. noun and, to and use. And managing them is really just a small portion of it. Understanding your emotions, understanding, watching and understanding other people's emotions. Um, those are probably the ones. And I, I wonder about that a lot too with how we can be so much more anonymous now interacting online. Um, yeah, that it, makes that really difficult. I. I don't know if comments from your average schmo who is anonymous online really fits into the emotion. You tell me. I don't know if it really fits into the emotional intelligence paradigm. To me, it almost feels like those people are blowing off steam in a way that they know can't come back. It's like tactical deployment of ugliness. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not that they're completely out of control, although I'm sure that fits a fair amount of the people. I think it's just that they don't feel the elastic band of social responsibility that the rest of us do, where they can only go so far, but then eventually they have to snap back to reasonableness. There's no snapback. And so a part of me thinks that that exists outside of the field that we're describing that, that you may, it may, but you know, I think, and we're probably opening another can of worms that we don't need to go too deep into, but I think it's, it's easy to read podcast. (laughs) If you think there's a can of worms, we won't open. It's easy to read. 30 comments and 29 are positive and one is negative and become completely fixated on the negative one, oh, even if it is yep. 
completely meaningless. You're talking to you're yeah. talking to instructor, fellow instructors that get student feedback. Yeah. And That's 20 of them be. are like, this guy is it's great. This class is very well done. And then the one person's like, no, I don't know if I cared for that assignment. And I mm-hmm. will stay awake at That's night. That's all you think about yeah. for the next two weeks. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that happens in real time in the classroom, too. I, I you know, have worked a long time to not be so analytical of, of every single person's face and emotional state and my assumptions mm-hmm. at every moment which is hard for me because I'm always doing that and so the way that plays out in the classroom sometimes is I mean you can you, the class can be going great but if there is one person there disinterested or seems unhappy I, it's hard for me to 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 not fixate on that or to or to, to feel like it's my job to make that you know better for that one person mm-hmm. But in that process, you're losing or letting down the entire rest of the classroom, right? And so it, it's it's something I've worked on for a long time. I feel like I'm better at now, right? But it's e- it's really easy to feel like, you know, if, if everyone's not happy, then I'm not doing my job well. And that is uh-huh. absolutely not the case, right? But at yeah. the same time, I really have never, it's never set well with me when I'm bar- in grad school first, you know, first started teaching people would say you know and especially in in the physics department we, we would talk stats and so they would say you know you know 20 percent of them you're never going to reach so don't try and i that does not sit that does with not me fly with at me. all right like and I, I i i've never accepted that but that's different than hey some people have bad days there it's not about you and not making it about me is something i've had to work on and, and still work on that's hard yeah. so i don't know how you would uh, to to go back to the thought that i had had a moment ago uh i just don't know maybe we'd say emotional intelligence because it sounds nice maybe there's no other noun we can really use there but i'm just suggesting that the are you wanting to rename this I, I maybe we can do it right here the three of us because sure. if somebody is emotionally intelligent that implies that there are other people who are emotionally stupid Right. And I just don't think that that's the right way to approach it. Or I think what you might be arguing with is the definition of what intelligence means. And there's different types of intelligences. And those are also yeah. more on a, a, a scale. Right. Or, um, and then actually, I wouldn't even say a scale. And then that's the pro- spectrum. And then that's the problem anyways, because how do you describe somebody who's on the lower end of that scale without it not sounding uh, Well, ver- rather insulting. than saying a scale, you say a spectrum. And a spectrum isn't like you're going from low to high a spectrum is a range at which things express themselves mm-hmm. right like you know the uh, uh, visible lights on a spectrum and yellow isn't more red you know what i mean i know what you mean yeah so, somehow i know what you mean i don't know <laughs> what that <laughs> so my point being if intelligence is some sort of spectrum then it's not i'm smart or dumb it's how i express my intelligence looks very different right and so then that accounts for uh, someone could be, you know, really good at math, but they have a hard time identifying why they feel the way they do and how they're expressing that. Yeah. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, and I would to to go with that. You could be really good at using your emotions for motivation, yeah. Um, but you could be horrible at understanding what other people around you are feeling. Yeah. Um, and and could while we're can I ask a tangential question? All this certainly because I. Um, what is the difference, just from the person who is researching it right now, between sympathy and empathy? They are two very different things. Yeah, so and I know sympathetic people who are not remotely empathetic, but how, how do I explain that to them? As, as I understand it, and this, this may be corrected later, um, 
Empathy, if we, if we talk about cognitive empathy, I think that's very similar to sympathy, uh, where it's finding a place where I can understand what they're feeling, um, but not necessarily experience what they're feeling. Um, versus, and maybe I've said this wrong already, cognitive empathy versus sympathy may be the one where you are actually feeling what someone else is feeling. Um, Paul Bloom, I think it's Paul Bloom, he wrote a book called Against Empathy, where he argues this distinction. He has that, that title that makes you think, oh, why, why should it be against empathy? Right. Um, but is he really he, argues Is he against it? He is against empathy in the sense that you should try to feel what other people are feeling. Okay. He is very pro-cognitive empathy. Understand mm-hmm. what other people are feeling. Uh, certainly has a lot of positive outcomes and positive implications. Uh, sympathy in the sense of trying to feel what others are feeling and his argument is is just a way to get bogged down. Um, I think. Have you guys seen what? So it's a mental become? health. It's a mental health argument he's making. It's no. It's it's not really mental health. Um, have you seen? I think it's called "What Dreams May Come." Robin yeah, Williams. Yeah. yeah so Bro, I cried at that. <laughs> um, my heart. <laughs> I would say movie. I would say sympathy is similar to when he just goes down to be with his wife and decides yeah. I'm just going to stay there and everything turns gray and he is stuck there with her. Yeah. Um, that would, and, and in Paul Bloom's argument, that's not productive. You're just now stuck with wherever the other person is. But if, with cognitive empathy, you can look at it in, from an outside perspective. And maybe if it's, if it's something that someone needs, needs help with, you can understand and still be emotionally available to, to help them from the outside, um, or be emotionally motivated to do something about whatever the situation may be without being bogged down by the same emotions. A parallel conversation we've had before in that context is uh, one of the important roles of liberal arts education uh, is to help someone learn to understand someone else's perspective or worldview without agreeing with it. Mm-hmm. Right. To me, that's saying the kind of the same yeah, thing. Right. So. I'm not feeling what you're feeling. I understand, though, why you're feeling that way, your motivations behind it. And it can uh-huh. help me in my decision making and how we interact without me being yeah. changed or affected. You can remain objective yeah. and analyze le- with less bias. Yeah. Does it sometimes <clears throat> does it sometimes feel as a person who is a extremely serene on the inside and calm such as yourself when you are studying emotional beings does it feel like you are an alien race poking and prodding (laughs) the rest of us who are Um, who are riding the waves a little more readily than you may be i I will say that when i started (laughs) uh my dissertation my my parents came over to my house and i had this bookshelf full of books and articles about emotion and they're like why are you (laughs) studying emotion I don't know. I was they thinking, like, are you okay? I, I think you, they you were, were just like, you don't, you don't you're, really you're showing seem us. to show that much emotion. <laughs> you're showing, that's so funny. You're showing, I had that same thought because you're showing us your mental bookcase right now. Uh-huh. And I was thinking that same thing. I was like, the person studying all of our emotions. Is one, yeah. Not that you're not emotional, but that you're just so even keeled. I mean, that's what stood out to Whitney, why she recommended uh-huh. you. And so I, fi- I, th- I find that a very interesting There's an context. irony there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't deny that. I, I, let's you know, uh, <laughs> let's explore this a little bit. So uh, let's let's break this uh, you know assumption. Uh, tell us something. What's something in your life gives you just extreme joy? Ooh, I like that. 
On the I'm ball. not going to do well with these questions. <laughs> on the ball, Jared. That's a now. This that, may be the hardest hitting question we've asked in the history of this podcast. We're really sticking it to you now. I I will say a, a, an example that comes to mind is uh, I I really enjoy what I mentioned earlier seeing seeing when students get to the point where they're thinking for themselves, and uh, I don't know if that's extreme joy. No, he, I think but Jared, I enjoy that. If I may speak for Jared, he means Tom Cruise jumping on the couch on Oprah. Joy. I'm pretty sure that has never happened. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I would have to say nothing. Okay, uh, Jared, what what is what's your jumping on the couch? I, I similar like and but I, and I'll I'll yell out and shout. But when a student that you know, anytime I see a student make a huge cognitive step from where I saw them initially. And they, they do something. And more than that, when they recognize it as a proud moment for themselves, mm-hmm. right? And they're, in, in my classroom, too, there's everybody's talking and it's very, every, everybody learns to be comfortable and vocal, or, or at least that's my goal. So you'll hear them and they'll say it. And when that happens, like, oh man, I'll, I'll tear up a little bit. Like, I'll, it really, really brings me joy. What about Stanley. you? Sports. <laughs> That's not a very interesting answer, but it's uh, it's I again I um, I really enjoy stuff like Springfield votes because it does it it warms yeah. the cockles of my heart and it uh, just selfishly it it renews the purpose in me and I love that. But I'm not jumping on the couch. I am literally jumping on the couch during when my favorite sports team is doing something amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what about anger? Bring it home for us, Joseph. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know that I could. That this might be, might be a really disappointing end of this podcast. I don't know if I'm going to have good answers for any of these. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to have good answers. <laughs> don't ask the emotion researcher about his emotions. <laughs> Maybe he's emotionally unintelligent. <laughs> How about we do it this way? Uh, a good takeaway. So we, we we've got uh, tens of listeners that are tens. For an instructor, what's the big takeaway here? What advice or what? Uh, how could an understanding of emotional <laughs> intelligence and emotional labor inform a teacher to be to be better in the classroom or happier in the classroom? Um, the first way I tend to think about it is actually a little bit different than that. I try to to uh, create a culture among the students where they they kind of foster that with themselves, um, meaning that it's just you know a lot of they're working with everyone. They get to know everyone, and hopefully that over time. And I have an advantage of being with them eight hours a day for a year, um, but that seems to really reduce the amount of times where I have to even employ emotional labor to begin with. Um, I just that culture with my students, where they're all very comfortable with each other, know each other, um, have worked with each other uh, in different capacities. So maybe maybe one takeaway would be consider the structure of the classroom itself and ways in which you can avoid having to employ emotional labor to begin with. Uh, I know that's, you can't avoid that always. I know there's always those days where you wake up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever is happening in your life is happening. Um, and I think it's okay. I, I, deep acting seems clearly to be at least not as bad as surface acting, maybe even better. Uh, and even if you just have like I loved your suggestion of watch a funny movie right before class so you're in a good mood going in there. That might be all that you need to do. There's not a lot of effort in doing that. Um, 
But if you can, if you've got a student who's difficult, it may be worth investing a little extra time and effort to be able to find cognitive empathy with that student, understand their situation, um, and progress from there depending on, on what you find when you dig deeper. Well, Andrew, I meant to say that when my kids succeed. <laughs> I said sports, which was the correct answer. When you ask me what gives me joy, I should have said when my kids succeed. I am both. a dad. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Can't believe that didn't hit my head immediately. I don't know what that says about me. What's my emotional labor that I'm going to need to do? So, uh, I personally, I, I just that, that definition of, of emotional labor, uh, uh, I learned a lot of uh, the... the uh, uh, kind of talking through um, what emotional intelligence is and looks like, uh, and especially um, how to think about it as a as a its role in the classroom and, and in our students. Um, uh, uh, Andrew, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Well, now you do. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh-huh.